0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young, and I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of McCarran Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 10 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. This podcast is brought to you by the Litigation Section of the American Bar Association. The Litigation Section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org slash litigation. A curmudgeon has been defined as a person who speaks unpleasant truths in memorable language. We can all use curmudgeons in our lives because often they are the only people willing to tell us what no one else will say out loud. Well, what happens when you take curmudgeons out of their natural habitat? Well, my guest on today's show is certainly a curmudgeon who transitioned out of his natural habitat, going from partner at a large law firm to in-house counsel, and then made the transition that we all have made to practice in a remote setting. Well, of course, my guest today is Mark Herman. He is Vice President and Deputy General Counsel at Aon PLC. He has previously served as Aon's head of litigation and employment and as global chief compliance officer. For 20 years before joining Aon, Mr. Herman was a partner at the international law firm Jones Day, where his practice emphasized the defense of class actions and mass torts. Earlier in his career, Mr. Herman spent five years litigating at a law firm in San Francisco, and he served as law clerk to the Honorable Dorothy W. Nelson of the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Mr. Herman has written four books, including The Curmudgeon's Guide to Practicing Law, which is likely the best-selling book in the history of publishing at the ABA litigation section. Mr. Herman has taught complex litigation for nearly a decade on the adjunct faculty of the Case Western Reserve University School of Law. He is a graduate of Princeton University and the University of Michigan Law School. Welcome to the show, Mark.
1: I'm glad to be with you.
0: Well, you've had a lot to say over the years about how young lawyers can succeed within a law firm environment and how they can meet and exceed the expectations of internal and external clients. Has your advice changed for young lawyers now that they're working in a remote environment due to the pandemic?
1: I'd say that most of the advice that I've given over the years has been to strive for excellence. And I think that you should continue to strive for excellence, pandemic or no. So in that sense, the advice that I'm giving isn't changing at all. And I would say, in some sense, corporations have always been remote. In law firms, teams change. You have a piece of litigation, you work with some people, a new piece of litigation, you work with other people, transactions, deal teams change. So you work with different groups of people. But in corporations, you're assigned, you know, you have eight direct reports. Those people report to you, and it never changes. And they each have eight people reporting to them, and that never changes. And if you were assigned an international team, you've been working with an international team for forever. And that means that you're working with people remotely. I mean, even in good times, maybe you'd see them, I don't know, once a year, you'd get to Asia or just to meet people in Europe or whatever. So in one sense, corporations are kind of used to this because we've had part of our team's or many people have had part of their teams being overseas and thus you didn't see them in person for years. Law firms a little less so. But I think corporations, pieces of corporations, have been remote for a long time. Well, what
0: have you been doing in terms of communicating with teams? I mean, I know that prior to the pandemic, I hadn't, hadn't really used Zoom. I hadn't really used any sort of video conferencing tool. Um, I assume within your corporation you've been using uh, that sort of thing. But I'm curious, prior to the pandemic, had you been using that tool?
1: We went from zero to 100 overnight, overnight. I think everybody in America did. You went home from the office. Everybody said, uh, you know, they're going to close the city. You figured they'd close it for a week or two. You grabbed what you were going to need for uh, next week and the week after. You picked up your laptop. You came home, and it's a year later, and you're still work. You're working in the study. And I think everybody in America did that, and it was a shock to the system. But I do think most people survived it, and certainly within my corporation, it turned out the technology was remarkably good. And the only things that have changed, really— or are the need for more frequent contact with people. Because the less you see people in person, the more touches you should give them just so that they know that they're part of a group. So more emails, more phone calls, just trying to keep lines of communication open so that everybody knows that they are part of a team and feel part of a team. Because that's really the hardest thing to keep up, I think, in a time of pandemic.
0: Well what what advice would you have for a young lawyer who feels out of the loop? I mean, I think a lot of young lawyers feel like they don't want to bother the partner or, you know, senior associate that they're working with, but at the same time they either may not have enough work to do or just feel just out of the loop because, you know, they're sitting at home rather than being in the office where you can, you know, just go down and and knock on someone's door. What what advice would you have for young lawyers in that respect?
1: I think that law firms are really bad about they, they create projects that are disembodied. And this is particularly bad for summer associates because, you know, the partners at the firm are told you can't monopolize a summer associates time. The summer associate ought to work with, you know, six or eight people during the course of the summer. So your project should be no more than two weeks long. And you've been working on a case for four years and you have to peel off a piece of it that can be handled in two weeks. And the only thing that lends itself to that is a research project. So you bring in the summer associate, you tell them the research project, the research, the summer associate does research for two weeks, comes back, gives you an answer. And it's totally unsatisfying because it's not practicing law, it's not thinking about cases, it's nothing, it's just doing a terribly boring task. And to some extent, law firms do that with associates too, where people who are thinking about the case have a small piece of the case that needs to be handled, and so they ask the associate to handle that small piece of the case, which doesn't mean anything. And I really think that associates have to, partners should be sensitive to it, but if partners are not, and they're likely not to be sensitive to it, associate should be sensitive to it and should ask, why am I doing this? What are we thinking about? What's the case? What's the strategic situation? How much work do we do for the client? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And people are happy to answer those questions. I think they just don't realize how how much they're carving up projects so that the projects become meaningless and unbearable.
0: Yeah, I think oftentimes, especially as a young lawyer, you don't really, you can't see what's going on on the other side. You, You would think that, wow, this person, if I ask a question, they're going to think I'm dumb. They're going to think I don't know what I'm doing. And you try to puff yourself up as a young lawyer. It's hard to sort of understand. You know, the lawyer on the other side of the table, the senior lawyer on the other side of the table, really wants you to understand the project because that's the only way you're going to be able to help them.
1: And there's a difference between dumb and ignorant, right? I mean, I mean, just, right? There's one, one thing is to sort of ask silly questions that you ought to know the answer to. The other is, if you don't know why you're doing the project, could you tell me the something other than just who I should bill it to right what's what's the case about when is it going to trial what are we trying to establish for summary judgment what's the relationship with what's going on here and and i i most people are who are human will sit back for a minute and just give you a description of it to let you know what you're working on and it doesn't it, it does an awful lot of good to help you feel part of it, bu- building something for real instead of just doing a little disembodied piece of it
0: Absolutely. Well, I think part of it is uh, collegiality and sort of having a culture where, you know, people... Have feel comfortable talking to each other, and I noticed that you wrote in your twenty twenty one predictions article for Above the Law that uh, lawyers will want to return to the office at least a few days a week. It's hard to develop a collegial culture and train new associates when you're speaking to people only by Zoom or telephone. So I wonder, um, you know, how have you solved this problem in terms of maintaining collegiality in your legal department?
1: Well, as I said, collegiality in some ways. We're used to that because we've always been remote, because you've always had people on your team who are international who you didn't see that often. But we have now, we, we do make a big effort to have more group meetings and more team meetings and more touches with people so that they feel part of the organization.
0: Great. And what about training? New lawyers need to be trained. Um, uh, They feel like maybe they don't get enough training. How do you solve the problem of training new lawyers uh, in a remote environment? And perhaps uh, you might give an example of how you're accomplishing this at Aon. Well, at
1: Aon, we have less of a training issue than they do at law firms, at least in our law department, because we don't hire people right out of law school. So for the most part, we are bringing in people who already have six or eight years of experience, And they obviously don't know the company or, you know, the secrets about the company that one learns after having been there for a while. But they have a pretty good sense of the substantive law because they've been doing it for a while. At law firms, CLE-type training, I think, is better now than it was before the pandemic. Because CLE-type training, you know, uh, uh, CLL courses and trainings have all moved online. The bar associations have moved their conferences online. Everything can be seen by everyone. You don't have to fly out of town to do it. You get better speakers from more locations who don't have to waste a day flying in and a day flying back. So in some ways, the opportunities are better. And even... I mean, that's CLE-type training, which only is only a piece of the training puzzle. But there are also other things that have become easier in the pandemic. For example, depositions. If you wanted a junior associate to just watch a deposition because they'd never done one, and the, the rule is, you know, watch one, then take one, to have them watch one, you and the associate had to fly to L.A. to do the deposition. And now that's not true because you and the associate can dial in by Zoom and there's no expense or cost except for the time of the associate watching. So in some ways, more people can participate in things because you don't have to fly them there to be there, right? The, the hardest thing is really informal communications because that's what you're not running into people by the, in the you know, getting a cup of coffee and just talking to people about that. And that's, and that's very tough. But I think associates have to be aggressive about it. Ask for explanations, what you're working on. As, as always, ask for experience. If two cases that are related are getting argued on appeal on the same day, tell the partner that you think you should argue one of the two appeals. If a case is going to trial, say, you know, this is the least significant witness. Here's the outline. I can do it. I'm going to do a witness. And just make opportunities for yourself because a, a, little, a little bit of aggressiveness is the way you get ahead.
0: Yeah, I've always, uh, you know, reading your book, The Curmudgeon's Guide, it always makes me think that There are certain things that young lawyers can do to make a path for themselves in their career and to have the senior lawyers that they're working with trust them because that's really the only way that you're going to be able to move on whether it's at a firm or in-house or wherever you're at organization um, is by developing uh, that trust uh, relationship. Uh, you're doing great work that helps you develop more opportunities, but that I agree with you Mark. You also have to step up and ask for those opportunities once you've sort of, you know, you've made that trust because I find that it's, you know, along the way, senior lawyers are are a little hesitant to kind of give up you know that piece of opportunity because they want to do it. it's 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 fun to do. That's you know that's what we do with our lives is you know we're litigators. We want to do that argument. We want to take that key deposition. And sometimes it's hard for senior folks to to step aside to allow a junior person to do it. But it's incumbent, I think, upon a junior person to let let them know, hey, i, I want to I want to work on these projects. I want to do this deposition.
1: Both to let them know and to prove that you can do it. I mean, senior partners don't want to give up the good stuff for two reasons. One is it's fun to do. And the other is if the junior person screws it up, that'll be really, really bad. So you have to create trust first and then make the request. And then there's a chance that the that things will happen.
0: Well, let's talk about another piece that I often hear young lawyers ask about, which is business development. I think we all know that you know, if you want to advance your career at a law firm, business development is key. But I think you know, young lawyers, are, they, they often have the wrong idea about the cases that they can bring in. Because law firms, you know, especially large law firms, won't, won't take just, just any case. I'm curious as to when you were at Jones Day, what was the path that you took to develop
1: business? When junior lawyers ask me what they should do to develop business, I tell them words that they don't want to hear. For example, tell yourself that you will write one short article this year and one short article next year and one short article for every year for the next 20. And after 20 years, you'll pull out your firm bio and it'll be Pretty impressive, because there's going to be a list of 20 articles that you wrote. And there is nobody, there is nobody who wants to do that. Because sitting down and writing articles at a pain in the neck, and because it's non-billable, and the firm is not rewarding you for it, and why should I do that? But absolutely everybody in the year 2041 is saying, oh my God, I wish I had done that because everybody wants to have the impressive list of articles on their bio that they can show establishes their expertise. And the sad fact is, you can't get from here to there without doing it. So just tell yourself, you're going to write one a year and see where it takes you. And I will tell you that articles beget articles. By the time you've written three or four articles in a field uh, over the course of a few years people start to notice. And so they ask you, you know, they solicit articles from you. Can you do this thing that's on a tangent of it or that has something to do with what you've written about? And articles beget speaking engagements because the people who put together panels are looking for folks who are knowledgeable and they look in the literature and your name is out there. So one a year for 20 years. You don't want to hear it, but tell yourself you're going to do it because 20 years from now, you'll appreciate it.
0: Well, I understand that was part of uh, your business development plan or maybe it was thrust upon you, which was uh, doing some blogging at Jones Day. Tell me a little bit more about that.
1: I was asked to chair our products liability business development committee. And in order to create that practice, the people on the committee were writing articles and giving talks. And after a while, I started blogging and people were making contacts and meeting people. And I will say that you don't get immediate results. And because you don't get immediate results over time, the committee sort of collapsed because everybody was saying, why am I writing, wasting my time writing articles and talking to people and giving speeches and we're not getting any work? And the firm doesn't reward you for doing non-billable stuff that doesn't yield any work. And people wanted to stick to their knitting and slowly you lose people. And after seven years, seven years of doing that stuff, I ultimately landed a whale that was a very big client for the firm. The, The problem, of course, is that there's absolutely no guarantee of that. So it could have been. It could be three years and you land a whale and it could be seven years and you land a whale and it could be from now to retirement and you never land a whale and you're doing it all on spec. And it's an awful lot of effort for something that is an uncertain result. So push. But remember, it's not going to be satisfying. I will say a lot of people think once they write one article The phone is going to ring off the hook. I mean, that was certainly true of me. The first article I wrote, and I published a little bitty in California litigation years ago, and was thinking, oh, great, I published an article. So now people are going to start calling me for advice on that field. And I don't think over the course of a career, I ever got called for advice on the topic of that first article. So, And don't give up just because you've done it for three or four or five years and it seems like a pain. And remember, the road is long and you can only get to the end of it by doing what you have to. So do it slowly, see it works, and then hope that luck lands with you.
0: Well, Mark, how did you land that whale? Because I think a lot of people are in the situation you described, where you know people write articles or like you know my example is you know I wrote an environmental blog for for many years, and I similarly you know was kind of waiting by the phone, hoping that someone was going to to notice my articles and call. What was the 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 hook or the connection that you made to land that big client uh, from your articles and your uh, speaking engagements?
1: I think the biggest people. The biggest mistake people make for writing articles is to think that simply writing articles is the way to go about it. And the truth is, writing articles is good, but co-authoring articles with in-house lawyers who could give you business is even better. So why not solicit an in-house lawyer, say, I want to write this article in our mutual area of expertise. I will write the first draft and send it to you and then we'll publish it under both of our bylines. And then you do all of the work, you write the article, the in-house person may or may not read the darn thing, may or may not comment on the darn thing, but your name and their name go on it together. And then they got to see the quality of your work and they will remember you because they wrote that article, they wrote in quotes, (laughs) that article with you many years ago. And it's the same thing with panels. Speaking on a panel is good, but inviting an in house lawyer to speak on a panel with you is better because in pre pandemic times you had to fly to New York and you'd have dinner or breakfast together and then you'd have to chat for a little while. Remember, you prepare the questions, you prepare the answers, you hand the script to the in house lawyer so the in house lawyer does absolutely nothing and then the two of you speak on a panel together and the in house lawyer remembers that. So, so if you were doing articles and speaking, never write alone, never speak alone, never dine alone. The blogging was good because although it did not, it was very hard to trade. For I wrote a blog with another guy for, for three years before I left Jones A called the Drug and Device Law Blog. And it was very good for making us prominent in the field. Everybody knew, oh, you guys write the blog. And it was very good for for having people solicit us to speak on panels because they knew that if they invited us to speak on a panel in Chicago, we would promote the panel on the blog. So it was free advertising. If you ask one of us to speak, the blog would make a pitch. The media too, you know, uh, the Wall Street Journal is looking for somebody to to give them a quote about some new drug and device case. They go online, they find the blog, and then they call you so your name is in the press. So it served those purposes. That, of course, is not money. You know, being invited to speak and having having people in the press want to quote you is not what law firms are looking for. But if you want to raise your profile, I found that that blogging was a very good way to to raise your profile.
0: Well, other than uh, blogging or, or speaking engagements, uh, what other business development practices did you see at Jones Day
1: that worked? So everything is a crapshoot. And I would say that although it never happened for me, at large law firms, the easiest way to get clients is to have them handed down to you from more senior lawyers. So the senior person and you are working with the client, and over the course of several years, you take on more and more responsibility, and you are handling more and more of the communications with the client And finally, the senior person is just too busy and you are handling your cases on your own or with very minimal supervision. You know, give me a call before you commit malpractice. Other than that, this case is yours, right? And uh, eventually the senior partner retires and who is the client going to be handed off to? And all of a sudden you're sitting atop something that is very valuable to the firm. Again, that is as random as having articles or speeches or anything else yield business, but it certainly does yield business. I certainly saw that happen at Jones Day, and I know that for Aon, there are people who have retired and have bequeathed Aon to other people who are just competent people who we got to know during the course of the years from working with them.
0: Are in-house departments open to uh, conflict situations as well? I I know that, you know, usually a corporation has sort of a stable of law firms um, that they use, but what if those law firms have you know, a conflict? Uh, is that a, an opportunity as well?
1: It is extremely hard to get onto the list of law firms that significant clients use. We have long established relationships with lawyers who we know and trust, and they are good and they have proved it to us repeatedly over time, at least at, at, at my corporation. We took our relatively small value cases in the United States, grouped them together and asked three or four firms who we trusted to make a bid for an alternative fixed fee deal, an alternative fee arrangement, a fixed fee deal where they would do all of the cases with a value under a certain amount that we faced in the United States over a three year period for a fixed fee. So you're not breaking into our lineup of lawyers on the little cases because we've sold them all off. Every once in a while, we acquire a company and there is a lawyer handling a case for the acquired company, and we see that lawyer in action because they were already doing the case before the acquisition, and they continued doing the case after the acquisition. And I have seen a couple of those situations where they were very good lawyers, and we held on to them not just to do things in that field, but in other fields too. We were delighted to be introduced to them. But I will say that as just a stranger to a corporation – And you saying you want to have lunch with me, so can we have lunch? And you're thinking, oh, this is great. I'm going to have lunch with that guy, and therefore he's going to call me up the next day and hire me. The odds against that happening are extremely long because you tell me over lunch that you were good. And the guy I had lunch with yesterday said he was good, and the person I'm having lunch with tomorrow thinks that that person is very good, too. And everyone else I've ever met says that they're a good lawyer. And the truth is, most of you are lying because the average lawyer, sadly, is average. And we don't want to hire the average lawyer. And the fact that you're good establishes absolutely nothing. So it makes no difference. And I and many people are unwilling to take their chances on new lawyers because if they're bad, you pay a real price for hiring somebody who's no good. And the fact that they tell you they're good doesn't make any difference. So really what you're looking for are conflict situations. As you said, if we can't use our usual law firms and you've attracted my attention and you've said, I'd like to hire you if you have a conflict, maybe I'll do the case at a discount in order for you to see what I can do. A conflict counsel is a good opportunity when we get sued in new fields of law. You know, we'd never been sued for whatever escheat law in Kansas before. Oh, my God, I need a lawyer who specializes in the escheat law of Kansas. I There's nobody on the usual list of counsel who can do it. So I have to find somebody who's a specialist in esteet law. And the same thing with new geographies. Maybe I needed somebody who's in Kansas, for example. And we might go to national council and Kansas Local Council, but it might be a smaller case. We might need somebody locally. And that way we we would need a new lawyer. So new areas of law, new geographies, or conflicts counsel are really the possibilities. But other than that, it's extremely hard to get on the list of approved counsel for big corporations.
0: So Following up on, you know, a couple of things that you said, um, you talked about that you may have to hire a specialist. And when I was at some pretty large law firms, I always heard, you know, people, well, they said, well, when you describe yourself, you're really a specialist in the rules of evidence, rules of civil procedure, because you can take basically any case. But I think what I'm hearing you say is you actually, yes, you need to be very proficient in in the rules of evidence and procedure, and you need to be able to try whatever case comes in front of you. But you really do, or you really should become a specialist, at least in one area of the law, to give yourself an opportunity to get those kind of cases.
1: I understand that 30 years ago, litigators like to say, I'm a litigator, bring me a case and I'll try it for you, and that that was supposed to be what you sold. And I got to tell you, if, if a corporation is choosing between counsel and one person says, I'm a litigator. I've never done the exact kind of case that that you have that you're asking me to defend. But trust me, I've done a lot of other cases and I know how to try cases. And there is somebody else who comes in and says, well, I haven't tried quite as many cases that other guy did. But I've tried six cases in exactly your area of the law and I have a very good track record and it's going to be cheaper because I know how this works and how the processes are. And I know generally the body of law, it is very likely that a corporation is going to go with a specialist or a a pseudo specialist before they go with an absolute generalist. I know that law firms hate that. I know that litigators like to say they can litigate anything, but I think over time we have seen more and more, you know, it's pretty uncommon these days for somebody to be a litigator as opposed to a securities litigator or a products liability litigator just because it's quite hard to sell yourself as a generalist.
0: Well, let's say that you've developed a specialty in a certain area of the law and you want to get Aon's attention. Do you want to get your attention, Mark, to work on on one of your matters? Perhaps you have a case that that comes up. How would you recommend someone at a law firm to get your attention to get perhaps one of those matters?
1: As I told you, it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible. What are you going to, you're going to call me up and you're going to say, you want to make a pitch and maybe I'll listen to the pitch. Maybe, you know, somebody on the board and the person on the board says, "Hey, Mark, can you listen to this guy's pitch? Because it's a friend of mine. So we sit down and we meet for a half hour and the person tells me he's a great lawyer. <laughs> yeah, I stopped listening to that a long time ago. I understand you're, you're, you're God's gift to lawyering, same as everybody else I've ever talked to in my life. Why should I believe you? And it is very hard to overcome that. So unless, unless you get an entree... We, you know, you were doing a case for an acquired company. We saw you in action or new geography, new practice area, conflicts counsel. Unless there is a reason why we have to go to the approved list of lawyers, it is extraordinarily hard. And I must say, nobody has ever tried with me the tactics that I used when I was at a law firm. That is, I very frequently co-authored articles with in-house lawyers doing all of the work and they had to do nothing. I very frequently invited lawyers to speak on panels with me when I said that after seven years of boredom in the drug and device field, I finally landed a whale. It was a person with whom I had co-authored an article and who I had invited to speak with me on panels. So it was just somebody who was thinking of me when his corporation had a new area of work, was looking for a new law firm and was ready to take a chance on us. But since I've been in-house, nobody – and I'm, I'm not inviting your listeners to do it. God knows I don't need to have written any more articles. But in the abstract, nobody has even called me and said, hey, Mark, I'll write an article and put your name on it. How does that sound? Or, hey, why don't you come speak on this panel with me? So, so I, I don't know if those are unusual ideas or ideas people don't want to do, but nobody's tried it on me anyway.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I imagine you'll be getting a lot of uh, solicitations uh, in the future, so I apologize for that. But I I guess, you know, maybe a, a better question that I should have asked is, do you have any recommendations for finding which corporate counsel you want to work with or you should be working with for articles or, or panel discussions? Because, you know, there are lots of corporations out there and maybe you're at a firm that like a you know, a very large firm that, you know, doesn't specialize like like mine specializes on the construction industry. So obviously, you know. Construction companies would be sort of be in my my wheelhouse. But if you're at a very large law firm like Jones Day that doesn't, you know, specialize with a certain industry, how do you pick and choose which uh, corporate counsel or how do you find corporate counsel to, to start working with in terms of writing articles and speaking engagements?
1: I think you're confusing law firms that don't specialize with lawyers who do specialize because it, it is true that law firm will handle any problem of the Fortune 500, you, you name it, we, we got it. And in fact, do you have, you know, I got an IP case in Taipei. Do you have any IP lawyers in Taipei? Give me a half hour and I'll get back to you. We got the best guy. I'm sure we have the best guy you ever heard of who does IP in Taipei. Give me an hour. And you, you send around a message. Hey, anybody know? Do we have anybody who does IP in Taipei? And get back to the client, right? But for an individual lawyer at a law firm, you specialize in something. So if you are specializing, for example, in product liability, drug and device product liability law, as I was, I was looking for people who made the hiring decisions at drug companies in pharmaceutical product liability cases. I was not offering to co-author articles with guys who were hiring you know, tax counsel. That was stupid. So find your field. For you, construction, for every lawyer who works at a big firm, there's a field that you are trying to plow. So pick that field and plow it.
0: Excellent. Well, Mark, you've given us a lot of things to think about, a lot of food for thought. appreciate your tips. I think our time is about at an end. I wonder if you had any sort of last, last tips or anything else you wanted to say to our audience today.
1: I think that doing the very best that you can do is sort of underappreciated. You should strive for absolute excellence. And even, for example, in drafts, do not give a crappy draft to a partner because the partner is not going to think, oh, well, this is crappy, but it was only a draft, so it's okay. The partner is going to think your name and crappy work, and that is not the kind of reputation you want. So although you can label it a draft, and it could be a, a draft, the truth is it ought to be very good because the idea is to start impressing people to the extent that it's possible right out of the blocks, and eventually the senior partners become your clients, and eventually you become a partner and the clients become your clients. But it's very important to do the very best that you can do from very early on in your career.
0: Well, that's an excellent roadmap. And Mark, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today.
1: It's been my pleasure.
0: Well, if people are interested in reading the Curmudgeon's Guide to Practicing Law or purchasing one for the young lawyers in their lives, folks can go to ambar.org slash litigation and click on that Publications tab where you can find more information on the books sold by the section. And don't forget that members of the litigation section save 20% on section published books, which of course includes the Curmudgeon's Guide. Thanks again, Mark, for being with us. Thank you. Now it's time for our quick tips from the ABA litigation section. So let's welcome back Daryl Wilson to the show. Daryl is an in-house litigator managing global litigation and investigations at Tyson Foods, Inc. in Springdale, Arkansas. It's great to see you again, Daryl. Let's
2: talk about business development. Thanks, Dave. It's great to see you again as well. And this has been a great show on uh, business development. So what I want to do now is offer tips for young lawyers who are seeking to develop business and hopefully rise to the ranks of partnership in their particular institutions. So, as you know, the main thing about making partners that you typically have to have a book of business for some that may come as a fear of getting out and actually smoothing the clients to make sure that you can land that book of business. And to some, it may come naturally. What I want to do is offer a few tips for young lawyers of a, things that you can do to try to build that book of business and kind of develop and establish yourself in your career. It's important to note that, you know, that you are your brand. So you want to make sure that you do the best thing to develop your brand and develop it well so that you can be the best lawyer that you can be and also get business and make partner if that is the journey that you want to take. So the first thing that I would say on building a book of business is that You have to be visible. And by visible, I mean that you want to get out to the conferences. The ABA has a number of conferences that you can attend, whether they're in your practice area or if they're your general fall, mid-year, spring and annual conferences. At those conferences, oftentimes there are CLEs that are being held. And by those CLEs, uh, oftentimes you have in-house individuals that are participating as panelists on those CLEs. So you want to make yourself visible. And what I mean by being visible is you want to be in the room. The ABA will oftentimes provide you with kind of a pamphlet before that kind of shows you what the, the CLE panels will be about and who those speakers are. You want to take some time before that conference to review that panel and see the different individuals that are speaking on that panel and then place yourself in the room. You want to also have you some questions that you may want to ask of the panelists that may be there. If this is an area of interest or a topic of interest to you, or if there's an individuals there that you would like to get some time on their calendar to speak about what they do at their particular company. So my best advice is that while you're in that room and you're listening to the panel, you're listening to what everybody has to say. You want to be able to ask questions. Oftentimes in-house lawyers will appreciate if there is an outside lawyer that is asking questions about their business so you want to make sure that you can ask questions in that way they will be able to provide answers and responses to you to see if this is particularly a company that you may want to pursue to potentially do their business so one thing that i will say is that you want to interact with people that don't look like you that's important If you get into the room and you kind of linger around and you only talk to people that look like you nine times out of 10, you're cutting your chances of developing your own book of business because you're not being, I guess, open to different conversations that you may have with people that don't look like you. So you want to be able to interact with people in that way that may possibly lead to establishing a book of business and particularly landing a client. So by virtue of that, I want to offer the next tip is don't be afraid to ask questions and don't be afraid to speak to people that don't look like you. So one thing that you want to do is when you seek to get to know people, you want to understand and know the business that you're particularly trying to pitch to to do their work. If you don't know anything about the business, you don't have much to talk about. So therefore, you may be wasting that in-house counsel's time. So you want to make sure that you're being cognizant of their time and your time as well by being able to research and learn about the particular business so that you can know the different questions that you may want to ask and actually situate yourself well to potentially potentially land the business. The best way of being able to provide service to a particular business is to know exactly what they do. So spend some time doing your research to understand what it is that that business does and what it is that that person does inside of the business so that you can make that perfect pitch to them. By saying that, the next tip is that you want to be authentic, so make sure that you bring your authentic self to the table when you're making that pitch. You don't want to oversell yourself on a particular area that you have no knowledge of what you're doing because that will quickly be discerned by whoever that in-house counsel is if you don't have any knowledge about what you're trying to pitch to. So make sure that you fall within the practice areas that you know how to do and that you can do well when you're at that discussion or at that table trying to pitch for business. On top of that, you want to bring your authentic self just personally. Um, You want to make sure that you're not putting on a facade of being a person that you really aren't to try to land that business. Oftentimes, the in-house counsel will appreciate who you are if you provide them with your authentic self so that they know who they're working with and that they don't sign you on as an outside vendor. And one day you thought you were talking about something that was a passion of yours and they bring it up and then you don't have that true passion. And then they're just like, well, who is this person that I'm talking to because this isn't the same person that I met months ago when I decided to give that business. So make sure that in developing that relationship, that you make sure that you provide them with your authentic self. So another thing that you wanna do to develop that book of business is also have that visibility inside of your particular institution. One of the things that I would say is one of the most slept on things that people do as part of building and developing your book of business is cross marketing, cross selling the lawyers that are inside of your own institution. Oftentimes you can get credit for bringing in the client even if you don't do work on that particular file, you get that origination credit by being the relationship partner or relationship attorney at the firm that brings the company or the book of business or the uh, set of files into the institution even if you don't particularly do the work. So that still goes a long way because you get credit for bringing that client in, even if you don't do the work. And I promise you that if you cross market or cross sell another lawyer in your firm, that they will return the favor and do it for you going forward. So those are my tips about developing and building your book of business while also kind of developing your brand for yourself to help you grow in your career and hopefully make partner if that is your choice in life. Thanks, Dave.
0: Well, thanks, Daryl. Excellent tips. And thank you for bringing your authentic self to today's podcast. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. That's our show for today. And I want to thank especially Michelle Oberts, who is on staff with the litigation section and helped me with guest preparation and booking. This show was produced fabulously by Rich Rivera. Thank you so much, Rich. And my gratitude also goes out to the co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to Lawrence Coletti and our audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.